I want to read a passage to get us going here, just to get us in the zone and to kind of lead us into our main passage here. And this is from Colossians 1. So listen with me here. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Uh, these are the words in Colossians 1, and I don't know that we could find loftier or more true words spoken of Jesus than what we find in this passage. All authority, all authority is underneath them, him. He is the source of all created things. He is the object and the purpose of all created things. They are for him. And he literally holds the universe together. Why is there such a thing as physical constants in the universe? like the force of gravity or the expansion rate of the universe? Why do they remain set precisely in this exact spot so that the universe can hold together and not implode on itself? There's no physical reason why these constants remain and the universe holds, yet they do. And I think in this passage in Colossians, that it, uh, Paul's maintaining that ultimately Jesus Christ is the reason why the universe is ordered. Ordered. He's the reason why the universe is the way it is. His power is truly incomprehensible. And this worshipful passage, this lofty passage about the identity of the person, Jesus Christ, how awesome and glorious and powerful and awe-inspiring he is, he is it... Um, it leads us into the next few verses that Chris started with last week in Colossians 1. And this is the passage that we're focusing on for these few weeks before Christmas as we look at the incarnation. And I'm praying that we are awestruck by a God who took on flesh and that we really are changed as we reflect on this idea that we're changed on the inside, that our actions are changed and motivated because of this incredible thing that God has done. So let's pray before we get into our main passage for tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we, we ask that you would help us to understand what you've done and understand what you're doing and how it changes our present reality, specifically tonight. God, I, I pray that, um, Lord, you would help us to be engaged with you tonight, Lord. Draw us in to worship you, God, to know you better, Lord. I pray that you would empower us to live for you, God, and transform us. You say that your word pierces us, God. It changes us. It empowers us to do every good work, Lord. I, I pray that tonight we really would experience that and walk out in that, God, and we'd be transformed and changed to follow you because of your spirit using your word to build us up, God. Uh, give us humility before you, God. Help us to humble our minds, Lord, before you, before your word, and to be transformed, God, in our minds, to understand and believe and live by the truth that is in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you guys can turn here. I believe we have it on the screen as well. 
um, kind of our main passage that Chris started with last week from Colossians 1 that we're uh, focusing on last week and this week and, and uh, next week also kind of as a springboard. But keep in mind, next week, ugly sweater party, great opportunity to invite friends. The service is going to be real short, so we're going to have some party time also, and uh, it'll be fun. Uh, and I think we have a prize as well for the ugliest sweater. Um, With that said, let's get into Colossians 1, starting in verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. This is Jesus. To have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Okay, so last week, Chris talked about uh, this idea that, that we were alienated from God and we've been reconciled to him. We were his enemies, this bold statement in Colossians, and that's our natural state. So how does the incarnation impact our past? Our sins are removed. Our past transgressions no longer separate us from God. Um, so this way of relating to God as his enemy is truly in your past. If you know Jesus Christ, you are no longer an enemy of God. You've been brought into his family. You're no longer alienated from him in that way. Now, this obviously bleeds into our present state, right? Um, as ones who are reconciled to God and his children and his friends. Um, we are at peace with God currently in light of this passage, the teaching in this passage. And tonight we're going to get further into how the incarnation impacts our present reality, both positionally and also practically. Like, how does this change our daily thoughts and our habits? First, I'd like to talk a little bit, though, about what is the incarnation? This theological term derived from Latin describing the reality laid out in John 1.14, that God became flesh. Chris mentioned last night, it's like, Putting meat on is kind of what the term is describing, to literally become flesh. Jesus Christ took on a physical, fleshly, human body. And we see that in Colossians 1, right? Some key phrases here. Um, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. This is the divinity of Jesus, all the fullness of God. And later on, we see that... um, The people of God have been reconciled to God by Christ's physical body. So first in this passage, divinity is ascribed to Jesus. And later on, reconciliation is described as coming through Christ's physical body. This, in a nutshell, is the incarnation. That Jesus Christ is God and took on flesh and became a man. And literally has a physical body. Not just an illusion or a picture. I do. I have one minor problem, though, 
with the term incarnation. Um, and this is probably just me. Probably. Although some of you may have to recover from the same problem once I mention this and once I show, show this clip here. Basically, my linguistic skills are just strong enough to recognize the fact that the Spanish proper first name, Encarnacion, is just the translation of incarnation into Spanish. Um, so it's a pretty astute observation, right? Yeah. Um, so every time we talk about the incarnation, I just think of this clip. So I want to get it out of the way, and uh, then we can move on. Something good inside me Helps me to carry on I ate some bugs I ate some grass I used my hand To wipe my tears To kiss your mom I break my vow No, 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 no Jose Unless you want to Then we break our vows together they are ready for you now. There we go. Um. It's so sad when the movie clips stop at church, right? One of these days, we'll play a clip and just watch the movie. Um, yeah, I, I, I doubt that people would be all that sad. Um, so that's just how my mind works. I literally, every single time since I've seen Nacho Libre, when I'm talking about or hearing about the incarnation, I just think of that. So... Um, but then I have to just, you know, ask the Lord to, to help me move on, and I do. And now you guys can share in that with me. Um, so, talk, talking about the theology of the incarnation, it, it might seem like getting a little bit bogged down in impractical details to some of you guys. But it really is not. Okay? Um, and I'd like to demonstrate why that is. So um, you can read on the screen or turn to 1 John 4. I'm going to read a passage here. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Essentially, every spirit that recognizes and acknowledges that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So even from the first century, there are these aberrant Christian groups intent on denying that Jesus truly had a physical body. This is like a big argument back then. And this is one reason why Paul is so clear here. And it's still true. 
It is still true today. Uh, recently, I was reading a Jehovah's Witness article for some reason, and um, the teaching was that Jesus was raised with a spirit body and not a physical body, taking some verses totally out of context. Pseudo-Christian cults consistently misrepresent the nature of Jesus Christ and just say some things that are true but then are just off in terms of who is the person Jesus Christ. And we must not do likewise and get sucked into that. He is literally the most important person in our lives and in the world. And I say we should know him as intimately as possible and as truthfully as possible. I think the end of off or bad Christian theology, kind of the end goal, is this concept of Jesus as an idea. Jesus becomes the figurehead for a worldview and and robbed of his divinity and his humanity. And you guys might hear people uh, talk like that or speak like that sometimes, or even pastors. Um, If I ever start speaking like that, if you feel like I get soft on who Jesus is and I start talking about Jesus as an idea, I just, please slap me. Please slap me, or, or worse, you can hit me below the belt if that starts happening. Because it's the, end of, it's the end of bad theology in so many ways. I think sin and destructive theology, they're never content to stay in one spot. So for example, um, pornography. The end of pornography is not just watching a few YouTube videos. It, it, it wants to increase and gain a stronger foothold in our lives. And I heard from a dear brother years ago that the end of pornography, and I agree with this, the end goal is child abuse. This is, this is unchecked ultimately where it can lead. Just horrific destruction. Now, theologically, I think the end goal of bad theology is to rob Jesus of his divinity, not truly, but the idea among the people in the world and the people of God, to rob him of his divinity and to rob him of his humanity. So these ideas are out there today, and uh, we should be beyond skeptical when you start hearing talk of Jesus as just a great idea. Um, So this concept of the incarnation, it's laid out really well in a fifth century creed. And almost all Christian churches around the world Churches who disagree on pretty much every non-essential detail, um, they affirm what's in this creed. Almost all affirm what's in this creed, and it's called the Chalcedonian Creed. And I I just want to read this, and um, I hope as we read it, we are just more in awe of of what Jesus has done. It's going to take some intellectual engagement here to get this, to wrap your mind around really what's being said, and you can certainly just Google it and revisit it later. And I think that would be a worthwhile endeavor. So let me read this creed. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, 
consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. And all things like unto us without sin. Begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead and in these latter days for us and for our salvation. Born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of nature is being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one in the same Son and only begotten. God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us in the creed of the Holy Fathers is handed down to us. So in this creed, the scriptural teaching of Jesus' identity is codified for the church. He is truly and fully God. Yet he became and remains for all eternity truly and fully human. This is what the world began to realize when this baby boy was born 2,000 years ago. God came to us not as a visitor or a tourist. He actually became like us in all things, but without sin. This is absolutely remarkable. So how do these truths of the incarnation impact our present reality? Our day-to-day, the way we think, the things that we do. I'd like to lay out one explicit truth from the Colossians passage, and then kind of jump off of that to a few other practical implications that are expressed in other parts of the New Testament. So, um, first, Colossians 1. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace, by making peace, through his blood shed on the cross. Because of the incarnation, because God became a human being, true Christians are at peace with God. We're at peace with God. Now, why did Jesus need to take on a physical body for us to be at peace with God? This is, a, this is a pretty big question. Could God not have done this in just an easier, more efficient, less difficult, less costly, less time-consuming way? Um, and I, I, to be honest, I don't know that I could answer that question with absolute clarity, but what I do see in the scriptures is that Jesus, he became our substitute. Not not in an ethereal, mystical sense. Jesus literally suffered for our sins. Our, Our sins were punished vicariously through Christ. We were punished. We were punished vicariously through Christ. Is it possible for a non physical, just spirit being, to suffer in the way that was required by God 
to satisfy his justice towards sin. And it, it, seems, it seems to me that the answer is no. It's not possible. Based on the prayers of Jesus surrounding his death and the teaching of the atonement by the apostles, Jesus' physical suffering appears to be an essential component, component of him bearing the weight and punishment of human sin. There's some who want to make the cross um, uh, more of an illusion. Jesus was thinking of Jesus as being so at peace with God that, yes, it appeared that he suffered, but really he was, he was just cool with it. He was fine. He was okay. Um, but we should make no mistake. Jesus suffered unimaginable physical agony on the cross on our behalf. And this is the express purpose for which he became a man. He came to save sinners through being a substitute, through physical suffering and death. This was the road he was walking down from the very beginning, from the moment he took his first breath. He came to die for us. So because of that physical death, God's justice has been satisfied and otherwise sinful men and women, we can experience the complete forgiveness of sins and live at peace with God in a peaceful relationship with him. Now, is this your reality as a Christian? Yes, it is. This is your reality as a Christian. Is it your experience? Are you walking in a peaceful relationship with God? Peace is more than just the absence of conflict. Biblical peace, it's a harmonious relationship. Harmony, it's not the absence of bad notes. Have you guys, have you heard bad harmony before? Do you know what harmony is? When two people are singing? Yeah, there we go. Have you heard bad harmony is... Now, there's, obviously, you never, would never ever hear it at Awaken under any circumstances. Um, man, bad. For people that live at harmony with God, sometimes Christian singers in churches struggle singing, singing the right notes. It can be, it can be rough. Um, but when you hear these two notes that just don't work together, oh, my goodness, it is absolutely, at least for me, it's pretty painful, and I normally need to repent. Lord, help me just worship you. I'm not going to be distracted. Um, but when that person that's not harmonizing correctly, not singing the right notes or off key or whatever, when they drop out, it might sound better. It's going to sound better if the other person's singing on key. But you don't have harmony. It's just one person singing. Harmony and peace, it, it's... Just like with music, two notes or more being fit together perfectly in unison. Peace with God, it's not just the absence of enmity. It is living life in lockstep with him. It is experiencing intimate relationship with him. And so how, how is your peace with God that has come as a result of the incarnation and what followed how is that expressed relationally right now in your life? 
do you, and you can consider this, do you pray real prayers where you're actually talking to the Lord? There's nothing wrong with saying memorized prayers, praying the Lord's Prayer, but is it real? Are they just words? Are you talking to God? Are you really relating to him? Are you spending time with him daily? I want to encourage you through this Christmas season. Begin to live in your reality of peace with God by spending time with him daily. This doesn't have to be like a three-hour-long study session. Just spend time with God daily. You can do this by just praying continually as you go about your day. You're struggling, you're mad, you're sad, you're glad. Can we come up with more? Share that with God. You're joyful, you're grateful, just share that with the Lord. You can be in a conversation with someone. You don't have to weird them out by praying out loud, just in the middle of conversation with no like introduction to it. Just in your heart. like You can talk to the Lord. He, he knows what's inside of you. And you can pray to him. God, thank you. Thank you so much for this person that I I'm, get the chance to be with right now. Thank you for making them. Um, or when just sadness and sorrow overwhelms, bring that to the Lord. This idea of relating to God and praying continually in all things is part of, of walking and living at peace with God. And then this, the second thing that I would encourage to really walk out and live at peace with God and especially, I think this is a great time to have this mindset. I know it's a busy time. There's a lot going on at night. But also, some of you are stepping back from work and certainly have breaks from school. Spend some dedicated time each day with God in the Bible and in prayer. It doesn't have to be hours. It can be a few minutes. Just start somewhere. Start somewhere and start reading through a book in the New Testament. If you've fallen off that or if you've never gotten into that, um, just, you can start with one of the Gospels, the New Testament, and just start reading about the life of Jesus. Now is a great time to read the birth stories. You could start with Matthew or Luke. And just read and, and thank God for his word. Ask him to transform you. And one thing you can do is every day, just, just write one thing down. Acknowledge one thing that you're really taking away, that, you, that, that God is teaching you or that really stands out as the significant uh, transformational truth. Or perhaps one thing that he's calling you to do and calling you to walk out. Let's be people who live at peace with God through this Christmas season and spend time with him and relate to him, knowing him, living life with him. The second thing that I'd like to mention is that through the incarnation, we can experience empathy and power from Jesus in our weakness. Hebrews is a great book for this. There's so many passages. It was, it was hard to choose, but Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, we read, For we do not have a high priest, and this is speaking of Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because Jesus so graciously limited the advantages of his divinity, 
He experienced the difficulties and the sorrows of human life. He not only understands the big picture, he knows what it feels like to suffer loss. He saw friends and family die. He wept. He was hungry and thirsty and in need physically, financially. He knew emotional and physical pain. He was rejected and despised. Because Jesus did this incredible thing, we can share our burdens, and you can share your burdens and your sorrow with the one who can relate to you in every imaginable way. So how does this play out practically in sorrow? Let's erase from our minds this stoic, uncaring, bearded guy in the sky image this caricature of God that our society sometimes paints and we may fall victim to at times. Can we not feel like God is unconcerned with our troubles and trials? Maybe they're never quite big enough for him to really care. Is I think a thought and feeling. I know I've heard this expressed many times and I've felt this way myself at times, but he knows the whole scale of human suffering. From the stubbed toe to being falsely convicted of a crime and publicly tortured to death. He understands it all. He knows what it's like. And I'd I'd like to share a word specifically for those who really feel the weight of suffering through the holidays. And my, my heart breaks for you. Because Jesus' birthday, it's become an event that much of the world celebrates. And so with it comes traditions and family and memories and happiness and joy, or at least that's the way we're supposed to feel. But right alongside that, there are so many, and many in this room, I know many of you, many of us, who are reminded through Christmas that things are just not the way that they should be. They're not the way that you want them to be. They're not the way that they were. Um, and that's really hard. If you identify with that, as, as I know that some, many of you do, my, my prayer for you, one of my prayers for you over these next few weeks, is that the incarnation would remind you that your suffering is not outside of Jesus' care. He, he cares so much that he personally entered into it. And ultimately, he has a solution to it. He is the one person, the one person who actually has a solution to all human suffering and death and sorrow and pain. But for now, we're waiting. We're still waiting for that. And it's so hard and so, so painful at times. In this waiting, he longs to comfort you, to guide you, to help you in a way that no one else can. And so I pray that you would know the God of all comfort, who mends the brokenhearted, and who's not looking to just fix you and get you to put on a smiley face, but he loves you, he cares for you, he knows that he will heal you fully and completely one day. 
But for now, his comfort in the midst of sorrow is real. And sometimes we desperately need it. The third thing I'd like to mention tonight is that the incarnation demands radical generosity. Second Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This passage is in the midst of what is kind of like a support-raising letter for Paul to the Corinthians. First Corinthians is like an epic rebuke, uh, followed by another more epic rebuke that we don't like have. And then Second Corinthians is like a support-raising letter, um, among many other things. And he's not raising funds for himself, but for poor, suffering, struggling Christians in Jerusalem. And he reminds the church in Corinth that Jesus was rich and became poor. He's, he's talking about the incarnation. Imagine. Imagine omniscience to infancy. I mean, it, it, it just boggles the mind. Omniscience to infancy. Creating a universe to full dependency as a baby nursed at his mother's breast. Jesus, he knew all things. He could have waited. He could have waited on the incarnation until there was electricity, until there was the iPhone, until there were some conveniences. But he came into the world before running water, before plumbing, or any conveniences of modernity. It is difficult to comprehend laying down the glories of heaven to be born in a barn. Yet this is what Jesus Christ has done for us. But however difficult it is to comprehend, and it is, I think we can spend our whole lives trying, however difficult it is to comprehend, it is a model for us to follow. And Paul makes that clear in 2 Corinthians. Recognize Jesus' generosity. Recognize it in the incarnation. And it should lead us to give sacrificially. We cannot take on flesh. That, that, boat, has, that boat has already sailed. That doesn't work. You know what I mean. The ship has sailed. Um, we can't do that, but we can give to others in such a way that costs something. Has Jesus, this is a question for you to consider. Has Jesus' generosity motivated you to adopt a lifestyle of generosity? Has it motivated you to adopt a life that is one of giving? And I think financial generosity is the most relevant application here um, based on the, this, this particular passage because that's what Paul's talking about. This is something that every single one of us no matter how extravagant or meager our resources are, we can adopt this. Giving the widow's might, giving just a little bit when you have very little is a glorious and awesome act of worship that God celebrates. And if you have the opportunity to, to do that, praise the Lord. To give the widow's might is, is wondrous. 
giving houses or fields for the sake of the gospel and sacrificing for the sake of, of the poor it is also a glorious act of worship. Are our hearts moved to give sacrificially in the pattern of the way Jesus lived his life and took on flesh? I, I know I'm challenged in this area. Is God just, it seems like he just provides for us more and more and beyond our means, more than what we need. And I believe that's true for many here uh, or will be true for many here. And some may not feel that way, but wherever you are, there is a way for God to use you as one who is generous, one who is a giver. And I think when we really recognize and grasp the generosity of God, what he did in leaving the glories of heaven to be born in a barn, it, it, it can help us break free from the idolatry of materialism, which is, man, that's a sneaky idol. It just sneak, you, one second you're providing for your family, you're laying down your life, you're just doing the right thing, and the next moment you're obsessed with money. I know how it, yesterday Rowan, out of, I, I don't know where she got this from, she's like running down the stairs to the basement, say, what was she saying? Money, money, I love money. Oh my gosh, who are you, Rowan? Jeez. We're giving her the opportunity to like earn some money to give Christmas gifts. So she's got like two bucks, which is huge for her. She's super pumped about it. Anyways, I'm just saying it's a, it's a slippery slope. So <laughs> I'm talking to you, Rowan. <laughs> um, okay. One more thing here. Jesus, Jesus incarnation gives us the reason, the example, and the power for humility and self-sacrifice. Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Wow, this is radical. This is so radical. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Value others above yourselves. Don't look to your own interests. Look to the interest of others why is that better than living selfishly? Why is that better? Why, why is self-sacrifice admirable? Why can I not just look out for myself? I think much of the world understands the reality of objective goodness. It's better to live a self-sacrificial life than a selfish life. It's better to be humble than it is to be prideful. But most cannot answer the question, why? Why is that better? At least in a way that holds up under scrutiny. I don't think most can answer that. We can answer the question. We have an answer to that question as followers of Jesus. Right things and good things flow from the very nature of God. They flow from who he is. Things are good because that's the way that God is. Love is admirable. Love is good. It's better to love than it is to hate because God is love. Flows from his very nature. This is even why relationships are good. They flow from the very nature of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Relating to one another. 
It's good to live self-sacrificially and humbly because that is the way that God is. That is the way that God is. And he has demonstrated that so clearly through the incarnation. We see that as the passage continues. We, we, we see the why and the source. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And now this is what he did. This was his mindset. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What an incredible command. We are literally asked to consider the incarnation that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing. He became a little baby. He took on flesh. He became a human being for all time. We are asked to consider that and apply it to the way that we treat one another. How does this this work? Can you think of a way that you can do this by serving someone who maybe doesn't deserve it? By forgiving someone who has wronged you? Don't look down on someone in the church. Don't look down on them because they have less money or more money or a different taste Don't look down on them because they have lower intellect or higher intellect. No greater disparity exists in human relationship than the one between Jesus Christ and us. No greater disparity exists. He is glorious and awesome and worthy of worship and omniscient. He is great. And man, we have so many weaknesses, so many issues We don't know most things. We know a few things. Yet he made himself available to us, vulnerable to us. He calls us his friends. He loves us. He entered into our situation. Let us not withhold ourselves from one another due to pride or arrogance or the fact that people don't laugh at exactly the same jokes we laugh at um, or like all the same things that we like, um, Ohio State obviously excluded from what I just said. Um, Can you consider the incarnation in the way that you treat others? And say the way I treat people is especially, I mean, this passage in Philippians 2 is primarily talking about the way we treat people in the church our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. So that, that's, that's who Paul is addressing this to. There's definitely application, and we should treat people the same way outside of the church too. But thinking specifically about those in the church, can we think about what Jesus, even right now, think about what Jesus has done. Think about the incarnation, how he laid down his rights and thought of the interest of others above his own, giving us what we, re- we desperately needed but we could not do on our own strength nor did we even want to, really, in our alienation from God. Can we think about that 
and let God just give us ideas and a heart for people and creativity to love people in that same way. Here's what I want to ask you to do to close things off here. Take a, take a moment. I want to put those four points of how the incarnation, it, it just impacts our present reality back on the screen here. And I just want you to pray and consider one thing that you think God may, may want you to believe. Maybe it's something you, you just didn't know. And going through some of these passages has, has sparked, um, has taught you something that you didn't know before. Is there one thing that God wants you to believe? Is there something he wants you to experience? Perhaps you know you know that you're at peace with God. It just doesn't feel that way. You feel so, so distant. Or is there something that he wants you to do? An, an action step. Something you know. that Man, this is a phone call I got to make tonight when I leave this place. Or my whole way of relating to um, another socioeconomic group is, is it's just not right. My thinking, my heart, my mind is not right. God, I'm, I want to take a step and start treating people differently. Um, is there something that God wants you to believe, experience, or do as a result of these passages and this message tonight? Um, why don't you take a couple minutes? Uh, give me a chance to get set, set up back here. Um, also, take a couple minutes and um, just prayerfully, Brandon, maybe you could play some music also. I meant to warn you about that. Just some soft elevator music. Um, and consider that question. Is there something that God wants you to believe, experience, or do as a result of these passages and this message tonight? And if you can, just write one thing down and just pray that God would help you, that he really would help you walk out in that. And then uh, in a few minutes here, we'll sing some more songs. We'll take our offering and communion and all those things. I'm going to just go ahead and give you a couple minutes to do that.